Oh, Father, that's our prayer this morning again, that uh, as you speak to us through the word, that we would indeed have ears to hear. Father, take your word and use it well within us. Challenge us and uh, mold us and make us, confront us, stir our hearts, motivate us, all for the cause of conforming us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We need help, Lord. We're weak people. And we need your word to guide us and to challenge us and to grow us. So may your spirit have free reign among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. To whom these satraps would give account then, so that the king might not suffer loss. And then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over, for Daniel, to set over him the entire kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and they said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the injunction had been signed, the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and they found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and they said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. And he said in his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Uh, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. 
And then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. And no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And then at break of day, the king arose, and he went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because... I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, that no kind, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And then King Darius wrote to all the peoples and the nations and the languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall, to his dominion there shall be no end. He delivers, and he rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power it is he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Yes! Don't you love that? Did you get it? Don't you love it? Wouldn't you have loved to have been with the king? What have I done now? My best man. My best man. And I've signed his death decree. And then, calling in all of his lawyers and his scribes and his researchers, his legal assistants, find a loophole, find a loophole. loophole. And these malicious men are standing there. No, king, it doesn't work that way. It's done. What's done is done. And so he had to live within his own laws. Throw him in the pit. Sleepless night, and this is the moment, isn't it? This is the moment. And what was it going on in the king's mind that he would even ask such a stupid question? Daniel, are you still alive down there? King, live forever, I'm here, relax. Somehow in the king's mind, he had seen something in Daniel, hadn't he? That stirred in his spirit the reality that there is a God and it was not him. And that Daniel was God's man. Did you catch what Daniel said to him? Could you say this? 
king. God has spared me because I am a blameless man. Wow. I often have wondered about how it went down there. You know, it had to be pitch dark, right? Darker than the darkest dark, I figure. And Daniel's down there and maybe he scooted off to the side. And, you know, Daniel didn't know what was going to happen when it happened. And he realizes that he wasn't dead. And uh, somehow it occurred to him that maybe he was going to survive this thing. Maybe he finds a rock and gets himself comfortable. And I, I don't know if God put the cats to sleep or if, as nocturnal cats will do, come around and in the night stirring. And Daniel's kind of sitting there. I think he's singing some praise and worship courses in his head. My God is an awesome God. He reigns. All of a sudden, you know, kind of big old wet nose hits him in the arm. I wonder if he reached over and scratched him between you. He had to have goosebumps, didn't he? What a model. What a model Daniel is for us, isn't he? Of a man of impeccable spiritual integrity who was, and here's our word for the day, who was above reproach. He was blameless. Well, let's turn to 1 Timothy, shall we please? And we continue in our studies of this great epistle in 1 Timothy in our New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul to young Timothy, who was pastoring a church in a city called Ephesus. And he had to straighten out a lot of things. And one of the things he was dealing with is he was dealing with the qualifications for spiritual leadership in the church. We've entered a leadership series and we're going to spend some, some messages uh, discussing what spiritual leadership looks like. Now, remember that our challenge in our opening uh, message last week, our challenge is specifically to young men and to men of all ages of our church that we would examine our hearts and we would ask ourselves, do I aspire the position of spiritual leadership? That's how he started the chapter 3, that the man who desires, the one who desires the office of a bishop, it means overseer, one who has charge to oversee others and to be a steward of responsibility. So do you have that desire? And then he goes on to say that it's a qualified position. You don't just get to choose who's in charge of God's church. This is the representation of Christ's body on earth. He doesn't just let anybody oversee it. And it's a qualified position. And so our primary objective, first and foremost, is to make sure we understand the qualifications of what a spiritual leadership leader must be so that we meet the biblical criteria. But isn't it interesting that all of God's people are to live a blameless life? You know that passage in Ephesians chapter 5, the one that at first is kind of hard for women to take, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto Christ. And then it goes on to say to the men and husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church and gave Himself up for her so that, and it's an interesting phrase, so that He, Jesus, might present to Himself, Jesus, a church that is radiant and spotless and blameless. Every believer in the Lord Christ is called to the standard of blameless living. Daniel's a great Old Testament model. 
And in this passage on church leadership, we have for us what we're calling a template, a plan for spiritual development for all people. These are the minimums for spiritual leadership in the local church. And apart from perhaps being apt to teach, all believers everywhere are called to the exact standard of living. There are no exceptions in our New Testament. God wants His church to be blameless. He wants His people to be spotless. That's a challenge, isn't it? And we know that positionally in Christ, when, when we accept by faith forgiveness of sin and the salvation of God that is in Christ because He took our sin to the cross and did something for us that we were incapable of doing ourselves. We could not reach God. His holiness shuts us out because of our filthiness and our sinfulness. And then He loved us so much He sends Jesus to die on the cross to take our place, to provide a righteousness that we don't have, to satisfy the justice and the wrath of a holy, righteous God. And we can enter into that kind of a relationship. And we know, if we understand our salvation and the doctrines of our salvation, that we were declared righteous. That is, we were declared blameless once and for all, positionally speaking, in the eyes of a holy God. We're not talking about our justification here. We're talking about our sanctification. That is the process that as I live my life, I can look back and I say, you know, three years ago I was one thing. But today, by God's grace, I'm growing I'm walking in obedience. I'm more Christ-like today than I was before. That's the call to all believers, to be above reproach. The word means blameless. Well, let's um, camp on this word after we read our text, this idea of reproach. Let's read our text, and you'll see that it's a list of about 15 things that God is calling as the Criteria for spiritual leadership God is establishing, and it's what we're using as a model or a plan for spiritual development in all of our lives as we make our way through this list. 1 Timothy chapter 3, oh, this is a trustworthy saying. It's a reliable saying. If anyone aspires, anyone desires, aspires to the office of an overseer or a bishop, the word means the same thing. We learned last week that that's synonymous with the word elder. It's synonymous with the word pastor. Synonymous with the word shepherd. Bishop, overseer, elder, shepherd, pastor. If he desires that office, he desires a noble task. It's a high office. It's a good work. Therefore... Because it's a high office, because it's a noble task, therefore, an overseer or a bishop must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Well, it's an interesting list. And this morning, as I've referenced already, I want us to just focus on the the opening phrase, to be above reproach. Let's make six comments about that. They will be relatively brief and help ourselves understand exactly what he's talking about. What does this mean, above reproach? 
The first thing let's look at is the definition. Number one, let's look at the definition. Reproach means to have a cause or an occasion for discredit. It is conduct that is blameworthy. So the idea is that if you are a reproach, it means that you have stuff in your life that ain't pretty. You've got stuff in your life that people can point at and it brings you down. You can't defend it. And the elder in the local church, the pastor, the leader, and all believers are called to blameless living. They're to be above reproach. It is not to be said of them that they are in reproach, that they carry blame. If you look at the Greek word in the New Testament, there's a Greek word, one word that's translated in our English Bible into two words, above reproach. And the idea means, in the Greek word, the idea is that, that it means not able to be held. And I'm not talking about hugging. Not able to be held, as in not able to be put in chains or handcuffs. The idea is that if we were doing police work and we had a crime, we had something going on, and we had a perpetrator, we had somebody that we think is guilty... We would handcuff them and we would hold them. And then we would gather the evidence and make sure that we had all the evidence against him. Maybe the fingerprint crew hadn't made it to the scene yet. And they haven't done their fingerprint work. But this is our guy. He really looks guilty. And the idea of being above reproach means that they wouldn't be able to hold you. They wouldn't handcuff you. They wouldn't hold you because there's no cause for crime against you. But in in the nuance of the Greek, it's even stronger than that. And in the meaning of this, where Paul says he must be above reproach, it's a requirement. And the idea of being above reproach isn't just that, well, they caught you, but they don't have their evidence yet and they're going to get their fingerprints. Right now, they don't have enough to hold you, but they might. It's it's even stronger than that. And a guy named John Kitchen wrote a little commentary that I enjoy using on my studies here. It's entitled, The Pastoral Epistles for Pastors. And he writes on this point, he said, listen, the point is not simply that no one has found a ground for accusation against the man, but that no such ground exists to be found. You get it? It's not like they just haven't done their fingerprint work and don't have your fingerprints yet. It it means there are no fingerprints to hold you. You cannot be held. You are above reproach. That's a good word picture, isn't it? So that's the definition The second thing I want you to see, though, is that in this passage, it has much to do with reputation. The appointment of an elder into spiritual office based upon being above reproach means that people, when they think of this person, think of somebody who you can't make accusation against. He's above reproach. So it has to do with your reputation. This is an interesting point. And I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6, if you would, very quickly. And I want to show you how this works a little bit. Acts chapter 6. Paul is going to later say, turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 3. But he's even going to go down this list of 15 things. And he's going to end it with a similar phrase that he starts it with. He must be above reproach. And then when he wraps up this passage in 1 Timothy 3, he's going to say he also needs to be well thought of by outsiders. That is... He begins the passage by, you have to be well thought of, above reproach in the church, but people outside of the church need to think well of you. It's a very similar word, it's a different Greek word, but it's a similar concept. That people's opinion of you matters, and you have to be above reproach. In Acts chapter 6, there was a problem in the church in Jerusalem. 
The apostles were still ministering and living at this time. They were teaching uh, leaders in the church. The church had grown and there was a racial divide in the church um, and based on race. And some of the guys who were, uh, there was a complaint by the Hellenists, the, the Greeks versus the Hebrews, the Jews. And they said that some of their widows were being fed. Some of the, the guys were leaning towards uh, the feeding and taking care of the older widows in the church. Um, over some of the others that weren't of the same nationality, and they were kind of pulling the race card. It was like there's division. Really, what was happening is they were just so busy, they couldn't get their work done. And so notice how they solved the problem, and we will revisit this passage when we talk about deacons and the office of the diaconate, the servant office of the church, in the same passage of 1 Timothy 3. So notice verse 2 of, of Acts chapter 6. He said, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Their priority was the ministry of the word. And then they said, therefore, brothers, now notice the words here. Pick out from among you seven men, look at the next phrase, of good repute. What is it saying? Look at your church and find men of good reputation that stand out as being above reproach, whom we will appoint to this duty. It's an example, you can go back to 1 Timothy 3 with me if you will. It's an example of how this aspect of having a reputation that is above reproach is one of the qualifications for spiritual office. But that brings up a problem in our thinking, doesn't it? I mean, if what people think about me is important, now, number three in our discussion on being above reproach, we have to recognize that there's a tension we recognize the tension. And what is that? Well, I mean, i got to worry about what people are thinking about me or I can never get appointed to the office because people have to think highly of me. And my reputation matters. And so I get out of bed in the morning and I live my life in such a way that nobody will think bad of me. But on the other hand, when I stop and think about it, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. Who are they to judge anyway? And why shouldn't I just care about what God thinks? I mean, that was what Daniel did, wasn't it? Daniel, did you catch that part in the story? He said, and when he knew the king had signed the decree, he went up to his room, opened the windows and prayed. It's like, and then when they make accusation, hey, king, we got a guy who doesn't care what you think. That's Daniel. He's over here. I've got one inspector in my life and it's God, not people. If you will, please, let's go to Galatians chapter 1 and let's talk about this tension a little bit further and let's see how Paul solved it in his life. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. And notice that the Apostle Paul addresses this tension of how when you're in spiritual leadership, on the one hand, your reputation matters. What people think about you is what will get you appointed or kicked out of office. On the other hand, we're servants of the living Christ. It's what God thinks of us that should really matter. Look at this. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Okay, there's the tension. Am I trying to please God or am I trying to please man? Look what he says. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Listen, here's how this tension is resolved. Here's how the tension is resolved. On the one hand, the overseer is to be above repute. 
He is to be blameless, and that has everything to do with his reputation. But he doesn't live his life concerned about what people think. He lives his life only concerned about what God thinks. And when your focus becomes the eye of God upon me, and am I pleasing him, guess what happens? The people notice. And the people say, that guy is something. He's not living his life to please the people. He's living his life to please God. And therefore, the tension is resolved. And if God puts him in office through the ministry of the Holy Spirit's appointment and the recognition of the people and the recognition of the elders, he will be appointed. Listen, you don't grow in the area of blamelessness in your life by waking up in the morning and having your checklist of 20 things that people might think bad about you and getting rid of them. I mean, you might think at that level somehow, but here's what you do. You get up in the morning with your list of 20 things that you have to work on and you ask yourself, what does God think about me? And when you begin to process what God thinks about you, then you will find honor with people. You will be blameless before the people. Well, we've seen the definition. We see that it has to do also with reputation, this position. Thirdly, we recognize that there's a tension. And this is a pretty strong word, isn't it? To be above, to be above reproach. And he used the word must. You have to be. Why? Well, number four, I want you to see that the bishop is a model for the congregation. The bishop is a model for the congregation. You remember in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What he was telling the church at Philippi was you imitate me and find the people in the church that we've been training and that the spiritual leaders who've been following our pattern and then you imitate them. Do you remember in 1 Peter chapter 5, which is a third passage in our New Testament, we have 1 Timothy 3 that we're studying right now, Titus chapter 1 that we will look at further, and 1 Peter chapter 5 where we have the criteria given for spiritual leadership. And there, Peter is exhorting the shepherds that they are not to lead the church as power mongers or do it because they have to or do it with a bad attitude, but he says, you do it because you want to, because God has appointed you, and you lead and you shepherd the flock as being examples to the flock. Directly tells the elders that they are examples to the flock. I want you to look with me again at another passage. We're turning in our Bible a little bit this morning. And just turn to your right about six or eight pages to Hebrews probably 10, 12 pages, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and look at verse 7. And this is a really clear verse about the importance of leaders being role models. Hebrews chapter 13, and look at verse 7. The writer of Hebrews exhorts the believers, the Judaic believers, remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, notice the next phrase, and imitate their faith. Listen, back to 1 Timothy 3. Don't you think it makes sense that when Paul is establishing the criteria for spiritual leadership in the local church, he said, he must be above reproach because the leadership 
can't call people to be anything that they're not. Do you realize that the very gospel is at stake? That the reputation of Jesus himself is at stake? That the purity of the gospel and the outpouring of the gospel on a community and on families and on people and in the neighborhood is at stake? What happens to a church with unqualified leaders who implode or explode and they enter into immorality and they sin and they become reproachable. They become filled with blame rather than blameless. The ministry doesn't thrive. People leave the church. The church itself can often be known among the whole community. I have watched on news programs where police pull up in squad cars outside of churches and go in and break up fighting parties within the church. Oh, Jesus is really praised there. Oh, the gospel's impacting that neighborhood. No, they become the mocking scorn of the neighborhood and the gospel impact is neutered and made into nothing. Why? Because the elders weren't blameless and worth imitating. And so Paul says you have to be above reproach and you're a model for the congregation. But this makes my mind work even further. And number five, I think we have to Admit that this is cause for apprehension. Who wants the job? Now you can say, uh, raise your hand if you're above reproach so that everybody in the church can model their lives after you. Forget it. I'm not doing that. Nobody's going to, nobody in their right mind's going to raise their hand and say, yeah, yeah, I got my act together. Follow me. I'm blameless. And so we have great apprehension. And this brings to my mind a, a little process that we go through when we appoint elders at Fellowship Bible Church. We actually have a, a systematic way that we do it. And um, I won't go into all the details, but in the process of selecting elders, and we have um, a strong uh, emphasis on elder leadership at Fellowship Bible Church. It's not pastor run. We have three pastors who serve as elders, and, we, and right now we have three what we would say lay elders, okay, three pastors who are on payroll and three men who are of equal decision-making power in the church. So we have six elders right now. We have two men that we're actually looking at right now and praying about adding to our elder board. And when we get down to some names, we send them a letter from the elder board and we explain that we have been prayerfully processing and seeking God's will and watching the men of our church that, and, and we... I tell you, when we sit in an elders meeting, that's a scary thing. You're going to wake up in the morning, get a shower, put your clothes on, go to work, and decide who's spiritual and who's not? Who do you think you are? And so I tell you, it's quiet in the room. And we read the passage. We've made it our, our process to read the passages. And then we have prayer together. And we bow our heads and we say, God, show us. Make sure that we do this with a pure heart. And we do it because God appointed us to that position. And God almost always shows His will for Fellowship Bible Church through the elder board. And so it falls on us. That's why elders have a great responsibility. And they will answer to God. And so we get it down to a couple names and we send them a letter and we say the FBC elders are in the process of seeking the Lord's direction in adding numbers or adding members to our elder board. Your name is being prayerfully considered if you are interested in this potential office of leadership, would you please complete the following questionnaire and return it and give some instruction? And the very first question is from verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3. The very first question says, Do you desire to serve in the office of a bishop, an elder, an overseer? 
And if the answer is no, then you just turn the paper back in and you don't do it. Because no one, as we said last week, should serve in the, in the bishopry, in the elder oversight, in the pastorate, in the shepherding role, if they don't want to and feel of the, the, the Lord putting them there. The second question is verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3. And it is this. Please give us your own evaluation. And we have these, these criteria, 15 things, with a scale of 1 to 10 on our page. And we have a scale of 1 to 10, and it goes down the line. And the very first one is above reproach. The next one has to do with your relationship with your wife. The other one has to do with issues of self-control and good judgment and being hospitable right off the list. And we ask you to tell us how you think you're doing in that area. And we receive this. And do you know that the very first one on there is always the one with the lowest mark? Above reproach. Above reproach. Who's going to say it? Why? I know my heart. I know my flesh. I know my weaknesses. I know that I'm just a piece of redeemed dirt. Who am I to say? I'm just a fellow struggler, man. I'm just trying to get out of bed and live for Jesus like everybody else. And so they'll put down like a six or a seven on that one. And sometimes they'll put eight, nines, and tens on the other things. Like, yeah, man, I'm in love with my wife. Don't mess with me, you know. It's good. It's good. And I never drink and I never lie and things as much as I know and you can put tens on there, you know. But above reproach. And that'll set you back in your seat, won't it? And so I think that we have to acknowledge that it's very humbling and we resolve this by the consensus of the eldership because isn't it very affirming and very humbling To have your spiritual leaders look at you and say, you are above reproach, brother. As far as we can tell, and as far as we have prayerfully considered, you're above reproach, and you are worthy to serve in this office. That's humbling. That's humbling. It's also why, or later on in the list, he says it's not to be a novice lest they get puffed up with pride. Because the more spiritually mature you are, what do you understand? The more you need the grace of God in your life to keep going. The more you need accountability, the more you need help to maintain your spiritual integrity. And so we admit our apprehension about this point of living above reproach. And finally, number six, let me just say this pointedly and briefly. This is not a statement or a call to perfection. Paul is not saying here, you don't sin. We're looking for the guys in the, uh, uh, guys who never sin anymore. Raise your hand. That's utter nonsense. John himself said in the epistle of 1 John clearly, the person who says they never sin is a liar. The truth is not in him. No, what he's talking about here about being above reproach is he's saying we know there's been sin in your life and we know that there was a time in your life when you were unredeemed and a point in life where you were born again is the baggage and the scar tissue and the residual of the sin that you have done in your life has that clung to you so much that that stains and brings ill repute upon you? Or is that in the past? Is that gone? And you are clearly living above reproach today. That's what Paul's talking about. So there it is. We have the definition. We've looked at the definition. It means you cannot be bound. There's no evidence to hold you. No no accusations that can be made against you with any evidence. And there's no evidence anywhere to hold you. It has a lot to do with reputation, 
But we resolve that not by living for the people, but by living for, for God. We recognize the tension that is um, between living for God and living for people. The bishop is a model to the congregation. We admit our apprehension about this whole thing, and it is certainly not a call for perfection. We don't have a lot of time left, but my goal in each of our messages is to conclude with with giving you a little punch list of what you can do to build this trait into your life. I think you understand what we're saying above reproach. The following 15 characteristics are what it means to live above reproach, ultimately. You're sitting here and you say, Pastor Van, I have so much trash in my life, there's no way I'm above reproach. If people did an investigation on me, they don't have to go any further than my DVD file. They don't have to do anything but go to my computer history. They don't have to do anything but just go to the people at work around me and the cubes around me and they know that I'm a different guy than I am here. I got too much garbage in my life. I am not above reproach. Do not look at me. You will never call me Daniel. You will never call me blameless. The lions would eat me and break my bones before I hit the ground. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're just going to keep mucking along? Don't you want to be what God wants you to be? That's hard. I always find it encouraging to know that the will of God for my life always starts brand new right now. Don't you like that? The will of God for my life always starts brand new right now. I might have to deal with some things in the past. Very quickly... Will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll not drag this out, but I want to click off some spiritual disciplines that you may have never thought of as spiritual disciplines. You build these spiritual disciplines in your life, starting today, brand new, begin to build this into your life, and it will change your outlook, it will change your decision-making processes, it will change the outcomes of your life, so that someday, even if you can't do it today, someday people will be able to look at you and say, yep, above reproach, blameless, can't be held, can't lock that person up in bars, there's no evidence. Starting today, won't you renew your heart? Won't you renew your spiritual purpose? Won't you evaluate your spiritual integrity? Notice this great passage of Scripture, and let me just give you a couple of things here. The Apostle Paul says, beginning in Hebrews 4, verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Listen, you may have never thought of these ways of thinking and renewing your mind as spiritual disciplines, but I'd like to suggest a couple of spiritual disciplines to begin to build in your life, to begin down the pathway towards blamelessness, towards being above reproach. It's going to mean change because change cannot occur without change. And if you're not blameless today and you just keep doing what you're doing, you're not going to be blameless tomorrow. But I want you to see what he's talking about here. In verse 11, he says, Let us strive to enter into that rest. 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. If you would read the context, he's using an Old Testament illustration and he's talking about where the will of God is for you. He's talking about the promised land and how Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land so that they had rest from the wilderness. The old ways were gone. The new ways had come. They had entered into the rest that is in Christ. I no longer am striving and working for my own salvation, but I can rest in the salvation that is in Christ. This rest that is in Christ is representative of of new life. It's representative of walking in the Spirit, of living a life of obedience, because look what he says, or so that no one will fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's talking about the children of Israel who disobeyed God. And so his point is, you obey to enter into rest, he goes on to say, because the Word of God is what is living. It's what will change your life. And so the first spiritual discipline that you have to do is, number one, you have to awaken the conscience to a heightened sensitivity for biblical obedience. Okay? That's just... Same song, 39th stanza of what we say around here. Listen again. The spiritual discipline of awakening my conscience to a heightened sensitivity for biblical obedience. It can only be done by the Spirit of God at work in you as you repent and confess and forsake the old ways and let the Spirit of God renew your conscience so that you begin a spiritual discipline whereby the thought processes of your life always run through the sieve, through the grid of the Word of God. And you ask yourself all the time, and you don't take two hours off. You don't take three days off. You don't go on vacation and live differently. You're always asking yourself, am I living biblically? Let me give you an illustration of how this works. I'll read you a verse in Ephesians. You don't have to turn there because you're probably so tired of turning in the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 says this. Listen to this verse. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I would say that I can identify at least three times this week where I said inappropriate words. On an occasion, I put people down right in front of them to be funny. And I walked away and immediately my conscience struck me. And I was like, oh man, I did it again. I I put that person down and I said things that were, I didn't need to say. They were not characterized by grace. They were not characterized as building them up and as edifying them. And I, I, I had a corrupt communication. And I walked away and I thought, oh Lord, Lord, forgive me. Lord, ugh. That is a sensitized conscience to thinking biblically. What are you doing today? What are you doing right now? What about that person? I walk past a piece of trash at Wise Grocery Store, and I walk past and I stop, and I'm not bragging, I'm just telling you what happened, because I don't always do it. And I went back and picked up the trash because the biblical thinking took over. just messes up your life when you start thinking biblically. (laughs) And it said... To him that knoweth to do good and doesn't do it, it's sin. And I, and I thought to myself, if I was the manager, I'd have that boy out here picking up this junk. And I, I why don't you pick it up? Who do you think you are? <laughs> to him that knoweth to do good. Sin. Another time I was talking to a couple guys, 
And we didn't say curse words, we didn't say anything bad, but I said something that, that when I walked away, the Spirit of God convicted me back to the words, back to the mouth. That was not, that was not edifying, that was not pastoral, that was, that was just construction guy talk. And I want to be a construction guy, so that's a compliment. But it's like, you see, everything about it, everything about it. Are you thinking biblically? It becomes, it has to become a spiritual discipline so that the conscience is heightened to a whole new level of sensitivity. Now that brings on the other disciplines of scripture reading and prayer and Bible study and church time. Otherwise you don't know the word of God so that it can't impact your life. All right? And you got to sit there and you got to think. Later in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that people do in secret. I would apply that it's shameful even to sit and watch what the sinners do in secret. And so when you're watching your movie and you got your clicker in your hand and you're watching the TV and you're using entertainment, all the things that the wicked do in secret, and I'm bringing it in my living room to watch it and to talk about it, it's our great show, it's great, we're going to celebrate all the things that wicked do in secret. And then you say, no, I can't do that because I think biblically. See what I mean about the Bible ruining your life? You see? It'll change you. But do you know the joy of obedience? Do you know the joy of a pure conscience? Do you know the joy of a sin-free life? Very quickly back in Hebrews and we'll wrap up. The The first discipline is awakening the conscience through the power of the Holy Spirit to a heightened sensitivity of biblical obedience. The second thing he says is the discipline of practicing the presence of God in your life. The discipline of practicing the presence of God in your life. You need to become so attuned to the reality that God is watching you that you are overwhelmed by that reality. Look what he says. Not only is the Word of God what cuts down into us, But verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight and all are naked and exposed. I'm watching you. Do you feel the eyes of God upon you always? That's a spiritual discipline to build in your life that will change your behavior if you really believe it. And this is kind of funny because pastors have this power a little bit. Kind of walk up on people and they about get whiplash. Oh, pastor. <laughs> and, you know, their coat pocket starts on fire where they jammed their cigarette or whatever. You know, it's like, oh, the pastor's here. Isn't that something how that works? If the pastor's watching, let me tell you something. If the pastor's watching, it doesn't mean beans. It doesn't mean anything. I'll tell you what means something is that the eye of a holy God is watching you as though you are stark naked in all the universe and He sees everything and you can't hide from Him and you can't sneak on Him and you can't do anything that He doesn't know. And do you practice the discipline of being watched? It'll change your life. Everybody in here knows the difference of how it feels when you're all alone or when people are watching. And God is watching I'm watching you. So the discipline of a sensitized conscience, thinking continually, am I living biblically? The discipline of a completely heightened awareness that God is watching me. And finally, the discipline 
of living as a driving force in my life, the day of accountability. For the eyes of the Lord to whom we must give an account at the end of verse 13. To whom we must give an account. To whom we must give an account. To whom we must give an account. you got to be kidding me. The one who sees everything that I can't schnooker, the one who knows everything about me, I can't say, look it over there. Yeah. Doing fine. God's not fooled. He knows the truth. And this is not as to an accounting like my good works outweighing my bad works, but it is a matter of stewardship for believers in Christ. What have you done with God's resources? What have you done with the truth in your life? How have you lived out a sanctified life? Somehow there is an evaluation. Somehow there is this standing before God. We who stand bare naked before Him will give an account one day. Are you aware of that? Do you build that into your life? So that everything about you, the purpose statement of your life, now has everything to do with the day I stand before the Lord. Living now for that day. Living now for that day. That's the purpose statement of my life. And everything I do has to do with, do I want to report this to Jesus? Do I want him to turn to that page in my book and say, oh, what about this? That's gone. And you know what happens? Biblical obedience, the awareness of God's holy eye upon me, a drive to stand before him one day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And the next thing you know, you're caring so much about what God thinks that you don't care what people think. And then one day somebody walks up and says, I told my boy the other day to watch you because I want him to grow up and be just like you. And one day, like our brother Matt White working out in California, his boss walks up to him and he pays him $1,000 at the beginning of the summer and he says, I want my 14-year-old son to ride in your van all this summer. Number one, I want you to teach him the trade. But more than that, I want you to teach him how to love Jesus. Somebody walks up to you and pays you a thousand bucks for their 14-year-old kid to hang around you so that they can grow up just like you. Wow. Wow. It's powerful, isn't it? Let's bow in prayer. So uh, you can shut your brain off now, hurry home and check on March Madness. Or you can take a minute. And you can say, Lord, show me. Lord, convict me. Lord, would you sensitize my conscience to a whole new level as to my behavior moment by moment, whether it's biblical. Father, would you give me a burning drive and desire to stand before you one day and hear you say, well done. Father, would you overwhelm me with the reality that your holy eye is watching me every minute and you even know my thoughts before I think them. Father, would you just help me to be above reproach. That's our prayer, Lord. Take your word and convict us and now the Holy Spirit has something to work with for the next few days as we move out of here to hurried, cluttered, busy lives and stress, would you please help us to stay focused and help us to, to mind our spiritual manners 
that our spiritual integrity would be intact. And for those who need to start brand new today, would you bring a great conviction in their lives? You show them how to walk in the truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.